I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for May 4th, 2012, and today we are looking at some of the challenges faced by Jodo Shinshu. So we did receive a question from a listener, and uh, we'd like to address it. And it's kind of long, so we're not going to read the whole thing all at once. Uh, we're kind of broken it down into parts. So uh, this is the part we'd like to address first. He says, I understand that the Jodo Shinshu community has a serious problem with attrition. People are either not bothering to come to the temple or drifting away to other religions or becoming non-religious. Certainly there are many sociological factors involved, but I wonder if the seeds of this are within the tradition itself. And so that aspect of it about the seeds being within the tradition, we're going to address uh, next after this. But first we'd like to just look at this idea even of attrition uh, in uh, Jodo Shinshu, uh, the Jodo Shinshu community, and uh, take a look at that. And I'm not convinced. Yeah, and I, I... There we go. We're yeah. done. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> I can see both sides. So uh, I think one of the numbers that comes in... Well, th I think there's two uh, uh, examples that we can look at. One is in Japan and the status of... Um, or not status, but the situation of Japanese Buddhism, quote-unquote, and that's a huge overgeneralization. Uh, but I think that uh, there is some truth to it and that... Uh, Japanese Buddhism is just not reaching people these days in Japan. Uh, and I think that's just one uh, commonly held assumption or understanding. Uh, you know, that, that Japanese Buddhism is uh, often seen as either funeral religion, right? Funeral Buddhism and then tourist Buddhism, tourism Buddhism. And that people, yeah, people in Japan go to temples all the time. Temples are, you know, always have visitors. But as tourists, not as Buddhists, right? And that, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I saw it um, when I was in. Yeah, Japan. no, I saw it too. I just think that it's part of uh, what we should what we should be attentive to is these uh, categories that we're constructing. You mm -hmm. know, why is it that somebody who goes to a temple as a tourist is a tourist and not a Buddhist? Like, what is the mm -hmm. criteria by which we're making that decision? Mm -hmm. Um, is, is one is one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I just recently got a book that's sitting on my desk that I haven't read yet um, that uh, I got because I, I, I manage the reviews for the, um, the journal here at the Institute. Um, so people send me books to find reviews for. Anyway, uh, the book is by uh, Stephen Hine who did a book called uh, Sacred High City, Sacred Low City or something, I think is the title. <clears throat> anyway, it was about religion in Japan and from the little blurb I read about it, he seems to be arguing kind of the opposite, that there's this rhetoric that no one is religious in Japan, and yet if you go, there's religion all over the place. It just doesn't, it's not overt in the way that we compartmentalize religion, particularly in the States or in the West, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in, in Western contexts, religion is the separate category of social behavior, and I, I, I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure, but I think that what we need to do is just sort of question uh, how we make these these categories and, and why we decide that some things are religious and some things aren't and mm -hmm. so this is this is part of the reason why I'm not always convinced of the you know Buddhism is dying out 
uh, in Japan argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In Japan, of course, it's not my area of expertise, and I can't really speak to the nuances of that. But um, I think that, though, that in, um, the, in the United States, I could. Yeah, I think before we get to the states, um, just to just follow up a little bit on the Japan thing. I think even within some of the Buddhist communities and you know Buddhist priests in Japan, there's that. They um, see this happening, yeah, yeah, yeah. whether it's true or not, but they see it. So there are these interesting um, uh, um, examples of uh, Buddhist priests trying to uh, address the needs of people or creating um, uh, different opportunities for people to encounter Buddhism. And so, like for example, there was a fashion show, this like Buddhist fashion show that happened like four or five years ago. Um, there's like a uh, uh, cafe in Tokyo mm-hmm. uh, where this temple like opened up a coffee shop uh, trying to have that as a place where interaction could happen where Buddhism could maybe become more alive for people uh, there's uh, music right the more like hip-hop there's like this video of this one priest who like uses hip-hop in his ser- sermons I think and you know trying to make it uh, more relevant for young people in Japan uh, uh, there's even a bar connected to a temple, right? With the idea that you know people go to bars and often end up talking to the bartender, like they're someone that will listen. So rather than have it be the bartender, why not have it be the priest listening as he's serving you drinks? I guess. Uh, so kind of a lot of these are really interesting. Kind of like what you know, but um, but interesting where people have perceived that I think they're not connecting with yeah. uh, younger generations of people, uh, and so so and that you know that exists uh, in Japan. Right, uh, and I experienced it myself in Japan too. Uh, going to when I lived there for a summer, and I was like totally like, oh, I want to go to all these temples, and this is so cool. And you know, I would go to the temples, and then after visiting a whole bunch, I realized it's like I'm going to a museum. You know, I'm not having a chance to really um, interact with the temple other than just seeing stuff behind a, a fence, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, and that uh, I realized that for me, I had a temple that was alive, the Nishihonganji, like it was right on my front door, and I was going every day. And I realized I kind of feel like I almost don't have to go to all these other temples um, because I have my temple. And I was very fortunate to have that experience. I think for you know a lot of people, they um, you know don't have that opportunity to to uh, realize that uh, they have a temple where it's Buddhism is alive <laughs> for them, <laughs> for them. Right. Um, it might be alive at all these other temples too, but it's hard to take part in that, become a part of that life. Right. And I, I think that's what a lot of people are looking for here in this country too, uh, when they come to my temple or other BCA temples. And, you know, they're looking for a place that they can call my temple. Sure. Right. Uh, so that's just some of the background on the Japanese side. Uh, but we, let's take our plane trip back to the U.S. <laughs> we can talk about uh, the situation here. Which is not that bad. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I don't know. Uh, I think that the the within VCA circles, there's uh, this this ongoing worry that membership is declining, and that you know uh, there's you know cause for concern, and there's you know people are leaving and not coming back, and yada yada yada. And and I think that that's probably a true statement, but I don't know that, and I feel like. We assume that the numbers are dropping, but there haven't been that many attempts to actually track numbers over time. And the way that the BCA keeps membership 
list is really inconsistent. Um, I actually was just working with one of our grad students here who did a survey of the BCA and some of the things that she found were totally fascinating in terms of the, the demographics of, of membership and whatnot. Um, but uh, Should we give the, the, the standard answer first? I think we should give the standard answer first because some people might not be aware. Right. But this is the number that gets bandied about. Uh-huh. And it's, um, I don't know the original number, 50,000 or something maybe. Uh-huh. Like they say, membership in 1960, uh-huh. we had 50,000 members. Uh-huh. In 1999 or 1996 or something like that, we had 16,000. Right. Right. That we're having this. Um, and so, so that's kind of the, the horror show, horror story number. That right. And it's interesting because the, the number that the BCA still says is 16,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but they see, here's the problem that I have with that. And this is what no one will give me a straight answer about is that the way that most temples count members is by families. Mm, family or individual family member adult family members uh-huh yeah sure okay yeah. Yeah, yeah so then my question is is that when those numbers get reported to the bca are they converting it from individuals or are those families is it sixteen thousand right. families or sixteen thousand individuals right. and how does that how does that math work between right. the temple and and bca hq right that's my first question my second right. question is is that i know that a lot of temples under report their membership to mm-hmm. bca headquarters well, don't so, say that on on i'm just gonna I, say I'm it <laughs> everyone knows this <laughs> Because behind all this is a story of money, yeah. right? And there's a story of, of right. dues. And, 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 and so that, you yeah. know, and those are real, some real problems that right. need to be addressed. And, and, you know, just leave all that aside for a second, though. I think just in terms of, you know, pure raw numbers, I don't trust the number that the BCA headquarters gives out because I don't know how they're getting at that number. And if that number accurately reflects how many people are actually members at individual temples, first of all. Secondly, I think there's the other larger question, the larger sociological question of how we define who is a Buddhist and who isn't anyway. There are plenty of people who are members of temples who don't actually go to church every week, mm-hmm. right? And then the reverse is true. There's plenty of people who go to temple every week who are completely involved in the community. Maybe they send their kids to Dharma schools, but they're not members. Mm-hmm. Right, so you would consider them to be a member of the community, but if you just look at the numbers, they're not included. So you know, there's all these problems that just need to be parsed out, and I don't think that you know, if we were to actually do all of that, that we'd be wrong and find out, oh, actually, membership is increasing over time. Um, But I think it's worth talking about these kinds of things because when we start talking about them, then we can kind of figure out what the real causes of the attrition problem are, Mm -hmm. and without addressing all those other issues. You know, we're just sort of taking a shot in the dark and being like, oh, well, you know, people are leaving because of the Internet or because of video games or because they're getting old or they're young or whatever. And, you know, right. sort of grasping at straws for a problem that we haven't really identified. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I feel kind of closer to it because I'm kind of lurking around when those requests come in for the new membership list <laughs> kind of thing. And, you know, I know that BCA sends out a thing and you're supposed to... Um, if someone has passed away, you fill that in. And if someone has joined, you fill in this new thing for them. And actually, a lot of, actually, that's really interesting because one aspect of the BCA membership list is the Wheel of Dharma, our newspaper. Right. And so a big part of the membership list is who's supposed to get this? <laughs> right. And so then if which, you have. Which, by the way, I get every month, I get a, a member, a, a, you know, a thing from the, the Wheel of Dharma. And I have not been a dues paying member of the BCA in a very long time. Okay. So we'll I'm take just, you off the list because we can't afford to send that out to you. 
<laughs> that's something I probably shouldn't have said on the air, but <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> but but it's interesting because then yeah, it's like so. It might be interesting to see how many wheel of dharmas get wheels of dharma get sent out, uh, and versus how what's the official membership number, right? right, right, right? right. And then um, yeah, are the temples reporting just that one person? The husband, yeah, right. If there's like a couple, do they just send in the husband? And actually, there's two people, but they're right. not reporting that. And, then, and, and are then, they getting two members worth of dues? And and how do you count children? Yeah, children don't count right. if they're if they're non if they're up to high school, right? right? So that's an a- aspect too, right? And then when they graduate from high school, you know, is it do they disappear or are they right. still and hanging that's, around? And that's a serious and, problem too. I think that that's that's a legitimate problem. Is that when kids graduate high school, they don't automatically become members, right? They, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm sure that most kids in the BCA don't. Mm-hmm. And then you know, then we have this this big fear that we lose these kids, and I think that's a real issue in the BCA. Is that I feel like the BCA does a really good job raising kids, and the mm-hmm. BCA does a really good job with funerals. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this whole middle ground um, of you know kids after high school and college and just starting out before they have families where there's not a lot of stuff for them to do within the community and then we lose them, quote unquote. But I also, you know, just because they're not a member or an active member for, you know, 10, 15 years, to me doesn't necessarily mean that they're gone for good. Right, right, right. Um, You know, so I think that we need to, you know, we need to address that issue, but we also can't like... I don't think we, I don't think it's worth it to freak out. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, it's, I, you know, if you look at the historical um, the historical record of the BCA, people have been saying the BCA is 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 two steps away from collapsing since the ni- early 1900s. You know, like this is this is the thing that we say. We've been saying this for so long, and yet we're still here. So it's a real problem. But I think we also need to like, you know, to calm down mm-hmm. <laughs> and and actually really you know have this conversation and really figure out what the underlying causes are. Um, and you know, maybe our questioner is right about his, 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 his question about why the attrition is happening. Oh yeah, it could be about the, um, that the seeds exist within the tradition. Do you like how I sort of like turn yeah, the conversation yeah. a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, should we address that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so he suggests some, um, examples of the, the seeds of within the tradition itself as to why there's attrition. Uh, and so for example, uh, salvation comes through reliance on the vow, not on external observances such as temple attendance or ritual activity. People might enjoy such things or fulfill some social obligations, so, some social needs through temple attendance, but there is really nothing obligatory about it. Uh, obviously, at the temple, one can hear the Dharma and associate with fellow Buddhists, but it seems that there is an anti-institutional dimension to the Shinshu teachings. Shinran stated that he has no disciples, that he has never prayed for his parents or others, undercutting the need for a funeral rites transfer of merit, and that it is the vow alone that saves us. Uh, and so uh, we can look at some of those. And, well, our questioner knows a lot, <laughs> as I think has done a, a lot of reading and study. Uh, and uh, I can't, you know, there's nothing, well, yeah, there's, there's, I think that all of this has some truth to it. Uh, Shinran is really, I mean, it's interesting because Japanese culture is often viewed as very group-oriented, right? And uh, that, uh, you know, you would never dream of doing something only for yourself, that it's always for the sake of the group. Uh, And yet, uh, to me, Shinran uh, Shonin does uh, have a really interesting side of really, uh, we could call it individualistic, more individual focus kind of, uh, instead of uh, group oriented, and that 
uh, you know, that your, your salvation, your path is about you and Amida, and that's it, right? Nobody else can do it for you, right? That you have to uh, take care of this. And uh, I think we can find that kind of uh, stream in his writings. Uh, the part about him having no disciples, that to me doesn't uh, really, uh, well, there's two aspects to that. Uh, one is he could say, I have no disciples, but he had a lot of disciples. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, right? he, and he so, said he didn't have disciples, but he didn't like tell them all to go away. Right, right. And so uh, I think that people looked at themselves as disciples and looked at to him as a teacher, mm-hmm. right? And we get that in his letters and, you know, people that, uh, you know, other m- priests that write him letters. And, uh, and so, you know, him saying he has none and not actually having any is two different things. So it's kind of interesting, this issue of uh, what uh, people say versus what they do, right? And, um, but the other thing, though, is he's not saying that he has no community. Right. He, he's saying, yeah, I don't have disciples because we're all equal, right? So I think him saying I have no disciples isn't anti-institutional. It's reimagining the institution, maybe, mm-hmm. and reimagining it so that uh, don't look to me as the all-knowing, all-powerful guide. I'm just like all of you. We're all equal here, right? That our our all-knowing, all-powerful guide is Amida Buddha. It's not me, right? And he's trying to f- deflect, I think, some of the the worship away from himself uh, to the Buddha. And so that, to me, is not necessarily anything against the institution. If anything, it could create a stronger institution because people may love, they want to be in this egalitarian institution right. instead of this top-down uh, hierarchical institution, which many of them probably felt they had been excluded from, right? That they weren't able to, um, you know, if they were the farmer, basically, not the follower, the disciple of Buddha, mm-hmm. right? Um, and actually, Shinran does say, you know, we're true disciples of Buddha. Don't be a disciple of me, right? I think that's where this no disciples thing points more to um never praying for his parents or others undercutting the need for funeral rights transfer of merit um yeah it's interesting that uh uh he, he does i think take away some of that dimension but i don't think that that meant that they stopped having funerals yeah uh, i think funerals were they still kept a lot of the forms uh without uh uh they didn't get, just get rid of that Right. That the, but it was reimagined. So I think a lot of this is not rejection, it's reimagining. Right? It's reevaluating and, and uh, uh, coming up with new understandings of the forms. But I think they kept a lot of the same forms. Yeah, right? and I the, think that if we were to bring that into the contemporary scene, I mean, I, I, as a minister, you must, I, mean, you, you, I know that you do lots of funeral memorial services, and I, and I feel like you know is it in your experience that people come to these because they're they're hoping to do transfer of merit yeah not at all yeah (laughs) (laughs) it seems to me like the reason we do funeral and other kinds of ritual you know there's a sort of doctrinal you know undercurrent right there like you know we do this because of blah 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 but i think that the real motivation that most ordinary people have is because of this need for community and this need for connection and you know you have a memorial service for a deceased loved one because you're experiencing an emotional, you know, psychological crisis, and that ritual helps you with that. Uh, you process all of that. Um, and I'm, you know, there might be people who are like, oh, I need to make sure that you know, grandma gets into the pure land, or I'm, you know, need to make sure that my karma is taken care of. But it seems like usually it's more that you know I'm in emotional distress and I need to be comforted, mm-hmm. and that to me is totally valuable you know 
and I think you know we could you know you could re, you know talk about reimagining it. We could reimagine that kind of you know this is why we do it. You know, kind mm-hmm. of from a Buddhist point of view. Right, and is is a good point because as I'm thinking about yeah, why do what do people express to me when they're coming for a funeral? Uh, and I think a lot of people are we just kind of have to do a funeral. Yeah. Right, and they're not um, you know deciding are we going to do it or not. Just I think. A, a, well, if, if they're not, if they don't feel that way, then I don't hear about it <laughs> a lot of times, right? But I think whether they're members of the temple and have grew up in this tradition or from outside, too, uh, they want, they know they're going to do a funeral. They know they're going through this end-of-life process, and uh, it's not something you can do alone. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. And so um, whether they're members of my temple and want, you know, my assistance because that's, you know, what the institution is about, or people who aren't members and, you know, either the funeral home puts them in touch with me or um, they, you know, there was some connection, like in the previous generation, uh, they, they come because this is something that they, they feel like they have to do. Uh, and it's not because they feel like, oh, my gosh, i got to make sure they, you know. Right. Most of the people, I think, I would guess 98% of the people have no understanding of merit transference or, um, or that kind of thing. And, yeah. You know, yeah. That, um, that's not the concern, really. Uh, and so that what I tell them is to help them, right? And, In the moment, yeah, like yeah. at that, you know, yeah. when they come to you, I'm sure you're not like sitting them down for a lecture about, right, right, right. you know, right. Well, I get that chance, right? I get that <laughs> chance in my Dharma message, but yeah. usually my message is, you know, that they're, this is not, this service is not for them. I mean, yeah, I totally address this all the time. Yeah. This service is not for them. They're okay, right? This is for us. Right, and you know this service is for us to to process and to to um, try and understand what's happening and what has happened and uh, where to go from here. Uh, so so I I feel like our funeral services are actually all this stuff is built in already. Right, the seeds within the tradition itself we're doing all the time within the format of funeral. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. and you know this to me goes back to that question of how you think about religion and the difference between uh, theory and practice or between doctrine and ritual um, or, you know, any other kind of dichotomy like that, you know, it's, it's very difficult in my mind to, it's like a chicken and egg, right? Like, do we do the ritual because the doctrine says so, or do we do the ritual and then we create a doctrine in order to create it, mm-hmm. uh, to justify it? Um, and, you know, and I think having that kind of debate about causality between doctrine and, and ritual is, uh, a, a, you know, you're not going to be able to solve that one. And that most people come to religion for, I think, this is, you know, not my Buddhist answer, but I, my sociology answer. Um, I think most people come to ritual or to religion because we're social animals. You know, human beings, for some, you know, evolutionary reason, like to be with other human beings. And so we create community and we create ritual in order to, you know, uh, help support that, which is valuable and important, and we shouldn't discredit it. Um, you know, any sort of doctrine notwithstanding, you know, we can come up with all kinds of, you know, logical, rational reasons why all of this religion stuff is ridiculous and find support for that point of view within the founders of our religion. Um, but nevertheless, I think people are going to keep coming together because people like people. So, you know, how do we then? You know, and this is this is the important. Que- I think the important question is then: so, what do we do as an institution? Mm-hmm. What is our role as an institution in order to help serve people's needs mm-hmm. and people's desires for community or for spiritual uh, help or for whatever the case may be? Right, 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 right. That's the important question. Mm-hmm. And BCA temples are uh, have 
a way that, that we have been doing it for a long time. And it's, you know, it's changed a little over time, but basically we, in this country, we have our Sunday service, right? And that's pretty much that's it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe a study class if that's available and then bizarre, right? And the special services and, um, and then, you know, memorials and funeral services. Right. And some folks are doing more. I mean, you know, right, right, right. But that's kind of, I, I think you would find that at any temple. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, trying to be creative, and uh, that's a question that I've um, been trying to ask myself, and I ask myself sometimes too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I don't agree with the questioner in a in a fun in a basic kind of way because I think we already kind of do a lot of this stuff, but it is also a good um, opportunity for self-reflection and reflection, and it's something that I have been doing since I've become a minister. And you know, yeah, why would someone come? from outside, mm-hmm. you know, and that in a lot big way, our temples are kind of family affairs, <laughs> right? That it's, it's, it's like a big family. And so for someone outside of the family, is there a place, right? And what kind of place? Is it fitting into what's already here? Or is there other stuff that we could be doing? And in a way, that's also the seeds of the tradition because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's not, uh, we chant sutras and uh, we recite the nembutsu, um, but we bow, offer incense, right? But like, is that's not something you can do for like an hour, right? And, and you know, is there something else that we could? We totally should do it for an hour, like hardcore Shinshu practice, man. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But hardcore Shinshu practice, what is that? that <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the yeah, question, yeah, yeah. right? And I think it's not about chanting Nembutsu for an hour straight. Or well, although it might be other schools, well, right? It but is. then you know, then we could if you, yeah, it might be. But then we could come right back to Shinran, who you know tried that and didn't work, and he said, "Don't do it," right? And I mean, right, there's right. you know doctrinal reasons not to do that, and that's part of I think that's what to me makes Jodo Shinshu really interesting is that mm-hmm. you know there's all these things we can do, but we're not supposed to do them, and maybe we should, and we shouldn't, and you know, it's part I think part of to me uh, anyway uh, part of what makes it interesting is this whole question and this whole struggle with mm-hmm. what it you know fundamental questions about what it means to be a human being and what mm-hmm. our um what we're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. and but that's a great question no we're not supposed to do that shinran uh, yeah. it's even questionable does he say that right and that we in a lot of ways jodo shinshu we do do what all the other buddhists do or many of the other buddhists do besides the meditation but that's a question too what about meditation right and um uh, I think we do most of that stuff, uh, but it's been reimagined, right? And so, uh, I mean, yeah. So this question is interesting in a lot of ways to me because I have felt this way too. Mm-hmm. And I have seen in my studies, you know, evidence for Shinran to say, you know, we shouldn't be doing sutra chanting, right? Or that, right, we, that we, yeah, almost that we shouldn't even have this institution right. that is misguided. Uh, but I've, and you know, maybe I've been brainwashed or just kind of bought into the party line, uh, but I don't think so. I think that we have to be really careful to read Shinran in that way, and that Shinran didn't reject a lot of this stuff. He reinterpreted it. It came to have different meaning for him, and he didn't stop sutra chanting, right? Sutra chanting, I think, we don't know. We have no, and that's one of the issues, too, is that Shinran's writings are very doctrinal, mm-hmm. and there's the, to find, you know, evidence of what did Shinran actually do is kind of difficult. Uh, but uh, I, I think that he probably, they did sutra, chant sutras because that's what Buddhists did. That's what we do. But how do we understand it? Why are we doing it is a different question. Yeah. Not should we be doing this, right? But why are we doing it? But we're going to keep doing it. <laughs> you know, um, 
Yeah, so uh, so so this question has a lot of resonance for me because I fe I feel my I've I've been in this place, uh, but uh, that my views have changed on that. I think so. So I think you know we still have a lot of um, issues to address. Yeah, uh, I think it's absolutely really really important to have yeah. these kinds of conversations because you know you and I talk a lot about the importance in Buddhism of being self-critical, which you can do on an individual level, and I think it's equally important for an institution on an institutional level or a community level for the whole community to be self-critical about what it's doing, mm -hmm. not just individuals. So I think these kinds of questions are great because it forces us to really get into the nitty gritty of why we do what we do, mm -hmm. um, not just as individual Buddhists, but as a whole community. Why are we doing this? And I think the my favorite part of this conversation we've just had is maybe asking this question, what is hardcore Shinshu practice? Mm -hmm.